Yes. Any of you guys have been watching Conan O'Brien last couple nights? Awesome. It's good to hear. You know, he took over the Tonight Show. I have, I have no reason except uh, that when I was just saying yes, I was reminded because Conan kind of does that. So I don't know if I'm being influenced by him or not. Uh, quick uh, poll the audience tonight with an interesting question. By raise of hand, uh, how many of you have ever fallen in love? By quick raise of hand here, okay? Put them up high. Jamie, what do you think, percentage-wise? 68%, okay? Now, the amazingly awkward thing about that question is there's some new relationships in the room, and so, like, one of the people raises their hand, and the other one, like, looks over at the other person. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, I don't, you know... So some of you guys may have just had that awkward moment. I'm the king of creating awkward moments. I don't know if you've been around me a little bit. I'm a close talker and just like to get in people's grill a little bit. So maybe you just had one. But um, th- this word love is so strange to me because, because it, it's become like this cultural thing that no one really even understands. Th- does that make sense? I, I'll illustrate. I, uh, my first girlfriend, her name was Amy Bursler. Uh, we started dating when we were seven. It was a pretty hardcore biblical relationship. It was awesome. And, uh, and Heidi, Heidi, I'm sorry. Is she still in here? She's up there. Okay, good. Um, but Amy, uh, Amy and I, we, just, we, we, uh, we asked our parents when we were seven if we could start dating. Um, and we did. And it was, it was pretty awesome. I've actually talked about Amy before here. Um, but our first kiss um, was a dare from a friend. And we kissed on the cheek when we were about nine or ten. And I remember shortly after that, uh, writing her a note in school, and many of you guys will remember these days, and at the bottom of the note, I said something like, hey, your cheek tasted great, something like that, and it's pretty romantic, and I didn't write that. God, I'm sorry for saying that. And, uh, and then at the, end of the, at the end of the note, at the bottom of the note, I said, love, Mark, you know, and a couple XOs and whatever. Like, I had no idea what love was. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I had no concept I had just, I had heard the word enough to attribute like some kind of feeling. And so I told Amy that I loved her. My, my little girl Avery, I was thinking about this a couple weeks ago. I love bedtime at her house. Uh, Avery and I have this, have this routine that we go through. Um, we have this remote controlled light. I won't share all the details with you, but we go up. She turns on the lights. We, I tuck her in. We, she wants to hear some stories. And so we go through this whole thing and and uh, a couple weeks ago, I was saying um, what I always say to her several times during the day. I love you. I love you. I love you. And it dawned on me for the first time. I was like, I, I keep saying this to Avery, but does she have any idea what I'm, what I'm even saying? You know, does my little two-and-a-half-year-old girl, Avery, understand the concept of love? So I decide, without the whiteboard, to, to try to explain to her there at 8.30 at night, a couple weeks ago, what love was. And so I'm like using all these words and hand motions and stuff and and then I say this word. I say, Avery, it's just like I, I cherish you. And there was this long pause. And Avery's like, you know, she's a fairly smart girl. And she looks up at me. And she's like, Dad, I don't know that word. You know? And, and I was like, exactly. You know? Like, like this is exactly the, the stance of our culture. Like they use this word, listen, like they own it. You see what I'm saying? The world uses this word love like they own it. And, and, and for lack of a better term, uh, they don't. Amen? And, but, but the problem is, as believers, as Christians, who know the very one who is the definition of it, 
the originator of it, who is it, we get confused because culture is using this word love in so many different ways. And so even you and I, who have the scripture, who describe this God that is by definition love, we get confused. Can't describe it, can't explain it outside of a feeling. The blessing is that John, the book that we're studying, the letter, the epistle that we're journeying through, if you're just joining us, is about ready to take us on a long journey describing, defining, explaining love. Does that not excite anybody else? Yeah. Okay, perfect. Awesome. Now, now you remember last week in verse 10 of chapter 3, he's talking about the evidence of sons of the devil or children of the devil and sons of God. And he said, you will know a son of Satan, literally, right? Because they do not practice righteousness. And does anyone remember the last phrase in verse 10? And they do not love their what? Their brother. He uses that phrase as a transitional statement to get us in tonight to 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. Open your word before you in your pew and turn there with me. First. John chapter 3, verse 11 through 15. When you're there, say, I'm there. Wonderful. Finally, some energy from the crew. I love it. Verse 11 says this. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one what? That we should love one another. Now, if you're a Bible scholar or have been paying close attention to our journey of John, or can at least read, then, then, then you'll remember that in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, we see this same concept of like something happening from the beginning. And then in chapter 1, verse 5, we see that same phrase even materialize a little bit more. And then in chapter 2, 24, again, four times now in 1 John, we've seen this phrase essentially like something that you've heard from the beginning. But this one causes some issues. Why? Because in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, he says, Remember what you have heard from the beginning. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And here, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, he says, Remember what you have heard from the beginning, that you are to love one another. Uh, Captain Confusion, right? It's like, like, what's happening here? Are you trying to, like, why these two messages? Well, first of all, why the constant repetition of this is what you have heard from the beginning? Remember what you have heard from the beginning. Because the Gnostics or the heretics have come in and started to teach new things. Started to introduce concepts that the believers there have never heard before. Different ways to view Jesus different ways to live life. And so John now four times keeps saying, remember what you have heard from the beginning because he is passionately desiring his readers in Asia Minor to remember the words that came out of the mouths of the apostles and to not get distracted by all this other garbage that's out there. But second question, why the difference? Remember that God is light. Remember that we're to love one another. This for me 
is a beautiful picture of the early apostles. When John comes into Asia Minor, he doesn't just walk in with his like top hat, and he's like, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Have a good night, everyone. I'm out of here. Thank you. Hello, my baby. Hello. You know, he doesn't do that. He preaches the total picture of the gospel. And so when he says, remember what you have heard from the beginning, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. And then when he says, remember what you've heard from the beginning, to love one another, both of those are true statements because he preached both of those. Because he was preaching the full picture of what the gospel was. Now, if you're like, so what is the full picture of the gospel? Let me tell you first, we in a culture are so confused believing that we are the saving agent. And when we believe the saving agent, how many of you guys like to put together puzzles? Any of you guys like to put together? Yeah. Some of you guys are like puzzle nerds, right? Like you'll get 800,000 piece puzzle, right, of New York City. And it literally takes your whole basement. It's going to take you a year. I, I, um, my little girl Avery has this, has this Dora puzzle that we've been putting together. What I've noticed about Avery is she always grabs like the shiniest, brightest, whatever, the most happening. You know what I mean? She never grabs one of the peripheral pieces because it's just like blue sky or yellow. You know, like it's, there's nothing happening. We, in our portrayal of the gospel, have done something very similar. Because we believe that we are the saving agent, or at least at times get confused by that. We grab the shiniest piece that we believe will stir in people the greatest results. And so we walk in with our top hat on and say, God is good. He's going to forgive you of all your sins. Does that sound good? Hello, my baby. And, and we, just, we just leave them there without portraying the total picture of the gospel. Without saying things like, do you know that you're a depraved sinner, son of the devil? Do you know that Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me? Do you know that he is going to completely change your identity when we believe that he is the saving agent? Then we are interested in portraying the total picture of what the gospel is, who God is. What happened to man? The problem that was created. How the law fits into that in the Old Testament. How the whole Old Testament then is pointing and waiting on a redeeming Savior. And then how Jesus came and what his life means and, uh, and what his death meant. And, and, and then what it means for those who would believe in him and who would be called his disciples. The, the, the rebuttal of, of that is people then created this like track system, Right? A, B, C, you know, and you like go through this rhythm of the gospel and you're like sitting down with someone. They're like, tell me about Jesus. And you're like, um, number one, God, you know, and you, you, you were like trained to just go through this rote. The gospel brings life. Amen. And so when John comes in Asia Minor and preaches with other apostles, he portrays the full picture of the gospel. And so when he says, remember what we've heard. It includes all of these statements because they were all the picture of the gospel. Can I ask you a question? And it just feels like I have to ask it. When was the last time that you had the opportunity as a messenger of the gospel to share with someone the total picture of what the gospel is? 
and, and I'm not saying like that this just happened over coffee. Maybe it happened over two years or six months. When was the last time that you had the great privilege of sharing with someone, um, hey, hey, can I tell you something? That God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. Can I tell you something that I, as I was completely messed up, screwed up, depraved because of my sinful nature, and let me tell you what Christ did. Let me tell you about His work on the cross. Let me tell you about the redeeming power of His love. When was the last time? It's a fair question, isn't it? And, and, and then people think, well, 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 well you know, just, are you saying that we should just be some kind of hardcore evangelistic? Yes! Not in some rote way, but spreading the love of this Christ that we say we desire to serve. When was the last time? And I'm not saying that we're going to start tallying, because again, then it becomes about our saving work. But I know this, that the gospel is moving forward, amen? The gospel is spreading out, amen? And so because of that, the question for you and I is, am I a part of that movement? Am I being used by Christ to portray and share who he is? John certainly was. And as a grandpa looks back and says, hey, remember, love one another. And who's the one another here? Who is he writing to? The church in Asia Minor, which means they are what? Believers. So here, the one another, different from other passages who imply strangers or non-believers, this is loving the church. These next verses are all about that. Then he does something crazy interesting in verse 12. Are you ready for something crazy interesting? Awesome. Me and one of you will go for here. We should not be, verse 12, like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And, and, and why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Whoa. Uh, first of all, the, the first thing that's intriguing, this is his only explicit Old Testament reference in the whole epistle of 1 John. His only explicit Old Testament reference. He goes right at the story. And, and the other interesting thing about this is, is that over and over and over, John uses this crazy, awesome literary technique. I think I hit that right. Thank God. And basically, instead of just plowing into the definition of love, he's going to use compare and contrast. Uh, how many of you guys took literary devices in college or something? Right? Yeah, this is perfect. You, is that Crystal back there? Yes. Literary devices, right? And one of those things that they teach you is like, strategic ways. Now the Spirit is speaking through John, and so he's going to use compare and contrast instead of just defining love, which Jason will teach next week. He's going to show us what love is not. Now, there are suitcases full of things that we need to cover in verse 12. So to help you, and mostly to help me stay on track, we're going to plow through these three questions. So put that up there for me. The three questions are coming magic. There we go. Uh, the first thing, what is John trying to say about Cain and Abel? Uh, so oftentimes when you teach a passage expositionally, verse by verse like this, like one of the temptations for us is just to scatter and like pull other concepts. But here, here he clearly teaches Cain and Abel. So you better understand the story, right? Put your finger there and turn to Genesis chapter 4. Finger here. 
we need to look at, for, uh, at Genesis chapter 4 and understand the story of Cain and Abel. It's a crazy story. We taught it. Um, actually, Jason taught this verse probably about three and, I don't know, three or four months ago, a long time ago in the very early stages of our church. It's a great story. It's a, it's a hard story. But let's read this in Genesis chapter 4. If uh, you're in your pew Bible, it's page 3. <laughs> That's funny to me. Verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Verse 8, look at this. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Uh, Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. This is a chilling story. Why does John go here? Why does it seem almost randomly does he use the story of Cain and Abel and the murder, his only, Old Test, his only Old Testament reference? One of the things that I always try to do as I teach and I study is that I always try to think of where things begin in the Bible and where things end. What was the first reference of love? What's the last reference of love? And on and on and on. He could have used David and Bathsheba. There was a murder there. Clearly a very popular biblical character, David. He could have used that, but he didn't. He uses this story. Why? Because it's, the, it's like the original. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus says Satan was a murderer from the beginning. He's bringing all of these concepts together to teach us something very important. How, how many of you guys, um, how many of you guys ever watched 2020 or Dateline? Right? Some of you guys? Yeah. I mean, these, these things are all, they're, they're intriguing, aren't they? Because they're always about like some, some murder mystery, you know, and some crazy things happen and the guy with the weird voice is like talking in the background and like luring you in, you know. Uh, uh, how many of you guys like CSIs? Any Horatio fans in here? Yeah, yeah. Some of you guys like, like Las Vegas. Like our, our nation is intrigued with these like mystery shows. The, the whole premise is, is murder. And figuring it out. You see, it's one thing to read the scripture. But it's a whole nother thing to understand the weight that the writer desive, desires his readers to have. Are you, guys, are you guys with me? How many of you guys have heard of the woman and the two young boys that were murdered in Columbia? Have you guys heard of the story? When I think of that story... The weight of bringing murder into this context starts to hit. 
The only suspect right now, it appears, is the dad and the husband. And you see pictures of this beautiful family, beautiful woman and these two beautiful boys. And you wonder in your gut, how could something like this happen? Why would anyone ever do this? This is like the most wretched thing that you could ever understand. And it's that same thing that attracts us to shows like CSI and Dateline and 2020. We get wrapped up in the mystery and it leaves us with this intrigue of how could anyone do that? In Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4, we start to get a bigger picture of why John uses this. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. Now, John's reason for using Cain and Abel is is not that his readers would all of a sudden understand the whole concept of the story, but he does want them to understand something. He wants them to understand Cain's response to the unaccepting of his gift. Are you with me? So Cain and Abel both bring a gift. And Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that Abel's gift was accepted by the Lord and Cain's was not. Are you with me? And then we start to see something happen in Cain. He begins to get envious. In verse 12, John asks a rhetorical question. He says, and why did he murder him? And he answers his own rhetorical question, which many of you like to do. Ask rhetorical questions and answer them yourself. He says, because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. His gift wasn't accepted. And so that caused in him this envy that led to hatred. And hatred that led to murder. Guys, listen. We can't move on in this passage until you feel the weight of that. Do you understand the purposeful nature of which John uses murder? Two offerings given, one's accepted, and the other is left feeling envious, which leads to hatred, and hatred, which leads to murder, which is like the the epitome, the climax of what a human could do to another human. He wants us to see the furious nature in which hatred manifests itself. Now here's what's interesting. Stay with me here. Because at this point you're like, I'm not a murderer. Good to go. Right? You guys are like looking around you're like, I ain't no murderer. You know, so this story, I'm, I'm checked out. This is good to go. Problem with that is, Jesus preached this little thing called the Sermon on the Mount. Have you heard of it? Yeah. One of the, one of the better sermons of, that was ever preached, by the way. Okay, if you haven't read it, Matthew chapter 5. At the end of that sermon, well, actually, more towards the middle, he's talking about adultery. Do you remember what he says about adultery? He says, if you commit adultery in your what? Anybody? In your heart, you've committed adultery. The concept is, you don't actually have to do the action of adultery. You can just think it, conceptualize it, and then you are just as liable. Interesting concept, isn't it? 
Now, he's talking about anger right before that. And he says that if anger resonates within you, causing this hatred, and he talks about murder a little bit, it's the same concept. He says, you are liable to judgment. So just because you have never personally gotten to the place where you physically murdered someone, Have you ever thought and hated someone so bad that deep inside of you thought it would be so much better if this person wasn't alive? And it's way down deep in the depths of your soul and you'll never ever talk about it because you'd never ever want people to see that piece of you. Have you ever gotten there to that place? For John to teach on love, he wants the church to understand hate. And he shows here how hate manifests itself, beginning with envy, turning towards hatred, and then manifesting itself in murder. That's why he uses Cain and Abel. Brothers, physically attached as family. And he says, look at them. Why would a brother ever kill a brother. Why would two individuals who are part of the same family, why would one ever rise up and kill the other? Because what is he going to what is he going to do? He's going to use that same concept to teach the church, you are brothers and sisters. Why would anyone rise up against another brother in Christ and hate them? He says it's, it's, it's as mind-boggling as a brother killing a brother. But what does he say? Possible. And that's a dangerous thing. So what does this have to do with the Gnostics? Because that's who he's writing to. If we just all of a sudden just teach on hate and forget about who he's writing to, we've completely miscontextualized the passage. Look at this. Two groups of people bringing the appearance of an offering. You see, part of, re- part of the reason why John is so passionate here is because the Gnostics have the appearance of Christians. They have the appearance. That was the dangerous piece of the Pharisees. They at times looked like, acted like, appeared like Christians. And so it's these multi-groups coming with an offering, and he's made it clear who's he, who he's going to accept whose sacrifice and offering he's going to accept, only those who are bought by the blood of Christ, leaving the Gnostics, revealed as sons of the devil. And so what happens? What John is saying is, is envy begins to take place. And then those Gnostics appear like they're in the church. And then they begin to hate And what it potentially does is it thrusts the church into mass confusion because people are claiming fellowship, but people are hating. And so it leaves you as brothers and sisters walking away from the church saying, what is happening? I thought this whole deal was built on love, and I'm being confused because this person is saying they're a brother. They don't have fruit, and I'm I'm, I'm just, I'm tired of being confused. That's what he's saying. That's why the evidence in verse 10 was so key discern so you know when the hatred rises up it's because they are sons of the devil and we'll talk about that here in a second 
Last question, what does this have to do with the church? Have you ever looked at someone and you thought in your mind, why is that person so good? Why are they so righteous? Why do they have that gift that I don't have? Why do people like go to them and ask for spiritual wisdom and they don't come to me? Why do people just, why do they personality-wise just seem to attract themselves because this person is so knowledgeable about the scripture? Listen to this. Have you ever, like Cain did with Abel, become envious of someone else's righteousness? You saw that person and in your heart desired to be that right, that good, again, from your perception. Friends, I would, I would claim with you that this is a major issue in the church. Amen? I, I would like to, to challenge you with the thought that there is a lot of consideration of other believers that happens in this room. The flip side of that process is that you see people's gifts. You see the fact that Jeff Brzezinski is one of the most brilliantly minded biblical financial guys ever. Backslash.com, you know. And, and you look at him and you give thanks to God because of the grace that he's had on Jeff's life to be able to give wisdom to the rest of us. The other way it rolls is you look at Jeff and you begin to get envious and that envy potentially turns to hatred. And this is where the church gets so wrong is when they just come filled with hatred, smile and wave. I'm envious of you, I'm envious of you, I'm envious of you. I've begun to hate you. But you know what? Smile and wave. Smile and wave. Does this smile look real to you? You know? It's just like some high school portrait where the flash went off early. You know? It's like, what? You know? The church is filled with that. Smile and wavers. Because they've begun to get envious. Now, listen. From last week, will that envy, hatred, and thoughts of murder be habitual in a believer? Anyone? Cannot be. Cannot be. Must not be. The evidence of a believer, of a child of God, is one who potentially, occasionally struggles with envy that begins to potentially teeter on hatred, all the while you sensing the conviction that comes from the Spirit. Are you with me? What does this mean for the church? It means we must start seeing the grace of God and repent of our jealousy Repent of our envy and look at individuals in the church and say, I praise God for that person. And we wish them well. And we desire that God bless them. That is what he's trying to say here. You understand hate and then next week you'll understand love so much better. Verse 13. Gets encouraging here. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. <laughs> um, 
like, okay, that was the whole Cain Abel murder stuff. That was pretty light hearted. And, and then you come with, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Again, it's one thing just to read the passage, it's another thing to understand it. Are you guys with me? So let's try to understand what he's saying here. First Peter talks about the same concept. His focus is more persecution. Why will the world hate you? First of all, because it hates Jesus. Put up John for me. If the world hates you, Jesus says, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you weren't encouraged that, brothers, the world is going to hate you, doesn't that bring a little bit of, of encouragement? Look, they only hate you because they hated me. Verse uh, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. They hate Christians because they hate Jesus. And true Christianity manifests itself in the following of Jesus and not religion. And what you'll find is the less you follow some religious practice and the more you follow Jesus, the more the world will be in contradiction with you. Second reason why the world hates you, and this is huge in the Christian church, is we project some moral standard on the world. Have you ever thought about that? I expect that when I call charter communications, has anyone called charter communications before? Oh, my gosh. And, and man, my patience is tested so bad. You can ask Heidi. I'm, like, on the phone wanting just to, like, scream, you know, charter.com backslash net backslash commies. Um, I expect that the person on the other line will at least be courteous and kind. I expect that the person in traffic won't cut me off because he has my best interest in mind. I I expect the people of the world will at least have some semblance of patience with me. Why am I projecting that moral standard on them? Why do I expect things of the world that cannot be expected without Christ? Here's what you'll find about the New Testament, and this is brilliant. The New Testament never talks about how non-believers should live. The New Testament continually assures how believers can live like Jesus through the Spirit. So why would we ever project some moral standard? Oh, it's less than the biblical standard. Project some moral standard on people who are sons of the devil. They hate you because Satan hates you. They are his sons. They are related to him. They hate you because that's their nature. And that was your nature too, pre-Christ. That's why John is saying, he's like, don't be surprised. Why do you act all surprised when they don't follow some moral standard of yours? Of course not. Now the last thing is they hate you. Uh, Let me put it to you this way. I, I have intentionally, especially in college, not been invited to parties. Anyone else? You know, like people are, and, they're, and it gets awkward because they're like in your dorm room. And, and, you know, they're like, hey, so it's, you know, they're like, it's time to go. And I'm like sitting there, hey, what are you guys doing tonight, you know? Um, we're, you know, we're just going down to the calf. It's 10 p.m., calf closed. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm, you know, well, we're just, go- you know, I've intentionally not been invited to parties 
Because when light is around darkness, it just, it beams, doesn't it? And it causes, in those who are living by their lusts, an incredible amount of, at times, condemnation. Of, at times, moral, weird conviction. Have you guys ever experienced this before? It's like there, there would be times, of course, like my friends, I love to be around them, but there would be times where they would specifically. Now the danger is when that happens with brothers and sisters in Christ. When you intentionally don't invite another brother in Christ because you know if you're around them, then conviction will be stronger. Have you ever experienced some of that before? Or, or you want to have your little gossip party, but if Miss Mary Sunshine comes over, right, it's like you know that you have to shut it down because she's going to shut it down. That's what we need. We need to desire that, not be afraid of that, but that's why the world hates you. Jesus was hated by the world. They are haters by nature, and they, like Cain and Abel, will cause a righteous tension between light and dark, period. That's why John says, look, don't be surprised. The world will hate you. And then you're thinking to yourself, look at this, and this is the struggle. I have friends of mine who are great people, don't you? And that's what confuses it. They don't know Jesus, but they're great people, right? Anyone else confused by that? You, you like, you hang out and it's cool. And they're loving, they're loving, and they're kind, and they're, and it gives the semblance of this. Truth is buoyant, and John's picture is: look, some of the heretics, some of the Gnostics, they look so nice and kind, but eventually, truth will be buoyant. Don't be surprised when that neighbor friend of yours who is morally good all of a sudden turns on you. He has no empowerment of the Spirit to act any differently. He's acting in his nature. Are you guys with me? And he goes on in verse 14 and 15 says, We know, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Uh, everyone say this with me. Uh, meta bino. Everyone say that. Meta bino. Rhymes with albino, right? Meta bino. When I was studying this passage, passed out of death into life was like instantly, was like neon lights flashing around. Like I needed to know what that meant. The Greek word meta bino. Listen to this. It means to be in one position and then to be taken and passed out of that position and placed into another. John says this, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. We were talking a second ago about moral convictions, and this is something that uh, Jason and I were talking about earlier this week. When someone comes to Christ who has morally been living very much like the world, what's the first thing that we talk about? Right? 
the first thing we talk about is, if they were an alcoholic, guess what? Like, Christ did a major work, no more alcohol, right? You guys remember the SNL skit? No alcohol, right? If they were habitual porn addicts, the gospel comes in, infiltrates their life, changes that, grabs that. No longer porn addict. If they were habitual gossipers and judgers, all of a sudden we, we talk about the fruit that is easily seen, right? The beautiful piece of the gospel, the beautiful piece of being resurrected from the dead, the beautiful piece of having your sins crucified on the cross of Christ, the beautiful piece of being a new creation is what John is talking about here. We know that we have passed from death into life because we have a new identity. And that identity looks a whole lot like the Father. Looks a whole lot like Christ because we love the brothers. It looks like Him. I've been given a new identity and so my challenge is that as we celebrate new people coming to Christ, that we don't just talk about the moral shift, but early on we celebrate the new identity that they have. It's like Mission Impossible Freestyle, you know what I mean? It's like some fake ID that, you know, but, but it's the real thing. They've gone from death to life, and that's what's happened to you. I want to phrase verse 14 this way. Love gives life. Love gives life. Jason and I, early on in our relationship, um, I, I make that sound like we dated. <laughs> Some people question that, but no, we have. We're just really, really good brothers. We uh, both had youth groups, youth ministries, and um, we were going to go down to Louisville and uh, help uh, this African-American church down in Louisville. And so Jason and I go down, and we do a, a pre-trip, mostly just a time to hang out. And we find this huge camp, because we knew it was going to take a massive camp to house both of our youth ministries. And we find this camp in this city called Baghdad, Kentucky. Now, this was right when uh, the Baghdad War began. So Jason and I instantly, like, sold, you know, in, called the trip Bunkin' in Baghdad, right? So came home, some of you guys were there, came home, we're like, parents, uh, mission trip this year, Bunkin' in Baghdad. You know, sign your kid up. You know, they were like, What? Hey, you gotta go in the you gotta go in the heat. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we're we're not playing here. So the beautiful picture that I, I want to share with you guys is uh, 27 cars, 27 cars uh, labeled A to double A on the interstate, housing 165 people, all following each other in line all the way to Louisville. It's amazing. Um, it, it's incredible that no one died. Ten cars. Um, we show up at this African American church and the whole purpose and deal is we were going to tear this roof off and rebuild it in three days, right? No biblical pun intended there. And, um, and so we show up, listen to this, we show up and all 165 of us, Caucasians, walk into this African American church of 40 people and the singing and the dancing and the banners were so incredible. I mean, I have chills running down my spine now. I wish I wish I could have that moment back. We all pile in this small church 
and everyone is hugging, and everyone is celebrating, and everyone is just excited, and we sing, and we praise, and we worship for who knows how long, everybody's sweating, no one cares, eventually we go out, surround the whole church, Caucasian, African American, the church, and we're just praying for God to protect us and guide us. Jason and I were talking about this earlier today. The way I described it was, I felt so alive. In that moment, man, I felt like I was living, you know? I didn't feel like I was being controlled by something like, just some deathly thing. I felt alive. That's the concept that John is trying to portray to this church. Love brings and gives life. So why wouldn't we as the church, and that's why you go to camp, and you're just like, why can't I experience that all the time? Why can't we? Why can't we as the church love one another so deeply that we feel alive? And we are alive. And the world looks at us, and they're like, what's your deal? It looks like you're living life and life to the full. And we're like, yeah, yeah, Jesus said that that's what would happen. I want to encourage you briefly in three separate ways that I can see us as a church needing to love one another. Put up this first slide. Put up this first slide. We need to constantly be assuring one another of the power of the gospel. Constantly, as brothers and sisters, assuring one another of the power of the gospel all the time on our lips as we talk. When we walked into that church, it wasn't like, so hey, how's the weather? No, it was, isn't the gospel so real and so alive? And it was just, yes, amen, and we were singing We must not be afraid to have the gospel constantly on our lips. Amen? The second thing is this. We need to constantly be holding one another accountable to the biblical standard. That is love. That's often we just think that that the love in the Christian community is just we've just become this one big coddle session. No, 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 no. We are constantly holding one another accountable to the biblical standard. That is the depth of the gospel love that can be held in the church. Lastly, we need to be constantly affirming one another through Christ's sufficient grace, encouragement all the time that is constantly giving God glory. It's what I talked about earlier in Jeff. Jeff, I praise God that he has had sufficient grace on your life to allow you to be who you are, and that is constantly on your lips. Some of you guys aren't encouragers. And you blame it on your personality. What do you think affirming and assuring and holding one another accountable is? You like the accountable piece. You like to be the Christian that just, you know, kung fus people in the face when they do something wrong. We must be a body that is constantly assuring and holding each other accountable, affirming one another. And all those things not being on some human standard, all those things being founded in the gospel itself. You see what I'm saying? That's what I desire. And then we walk out, and we're alive. We're alive. Because he says at the end of verse 14, whoever does not love abides in death. He goes on to say in verse 15 as we close, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. 
one thing to call them sons of Satan. And it's another thing to culminate this piece with this statement. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Love gives life. Hatred takes life. My ministry uh, several years ago. And I've shared this with a few of you guys before. My hardest day in ministry to date. been experiencing the the dehumanizing comments of a person in leadership. In fact, the conversation started like this. He walked into my office and said, sit down, boy. And I was uh, not a boy. If you're a guy, I don't know if you've ever had, like, Hal Moore can call me boy all he wants, you know? Like, there's some people that can call me boy. My grandpa could call me boy if I was, like, 85. I don't care. But this is not that situation. And he proceeded uh, with no love motive at all just to share all kinds of things with you that if I shared them with you right now. In that moment, as, as he walked out, he left. There was so much life taken out of me. I remember walking down and Heidi was downstairs and my pastor was downstairs and like I didn't know what to do. And I remember seeing Heidi and she's there's just so much life just taken out. What happens when that happens in the church, guys? The place where we are to be constantly learning what it means to live life more like Christ. What happens when something like that happens in the church? Can I tell you what potentially happens and what I've seen happen before is weak, unassured Christians let the haters control the gossip ring. And the Christians shrink back because those individuals seem more powerful and have more clout and tithe more. And so then the church becomes this complete, confused picture of what community life should be like. Let it not be so here. Let it not be so in this community that weak cowardly, unassured Christians in the gospel shrink back, afraid of those who aren't even believers, but have come in and have influenced the church. That's what John is writing to. Be aware of the Gnostics. They're coming in. They're disguising themselves. And they are haters. And they will tear up what we have started here, which you have heard from the beginning. Don't be influenced by that. Hate takes life. The message for you and I as Christians tonight is to sit back for a moment and evaluate our hearts and see where we have potentially confused the line of envy.
where we have begun to look to one another and see each other's righteousness and begin to desire that to the place that our heart begins to teeter on hatred. There are some of you tonight that will need to go to someone in this room, in this body tonight, and ask for forgiveness. I, in my heart, have built up this borderline hatred of you, and I want to confess it to you so that we can hold each other accountable in love as brothers and sisters. That's the church. Come on. That's the beauty of what this old Grandpa John is writing as he scribes this out. He's saying, just be the church. And if you're not a believer here tonight, hater by nature, your heart distills constant hate, envy, jealousy. You can not leave here with no hope. You can, in this moment, as we pray here in a second, ask that God would open your eyes to the reality of Him. And my prayer is, is that you, if you're here and you don't know Him, is that He is showing you how He, through His Son Jesus, and we'll talk much more about this next week, just gives life. And that His children then reflect that life that he gives. You through Christ can have that life. Truly living abundantly as the church. Let's stand together. statement is loving him and loving him. And my prayer is tonight that we take one step from this tonight and pray this. That if we don't love one another as the church, that this isn't a place of refuge. We are constantly being assured and affirmed and held accountable. And we have to ask ourselves, what do we have? conversations with tonight after the gathering here, the people that we've become envious of and even occasionally hated, God, I pray that you'll call our hearts to repentance. I pray that you will embody and equip this church, Matthias's lot, to be a church that's not plagued with gossip, judgment, and envy, but a church that truly is living abundantly, experiencing all the time the life that you have to give. God, please show us what it looks like to live a life.